sun is up, I'm off to the river now Sit beneath the morning sun Gone away, washed away, watch the clouds roll by And there I sit, I close my eyes Thinking, oh, Welcome friends, this is A Better World Podcast 30 minutes of inspiration from the worlds of business and the arts. This is Mark Ross, and I'll be your host. Welcome back, friends. This week, I'd like to talk about BlackRock. Now, BlackRock is the world's largest asset manager. They have over $7 trillion dollars that they manage uh, and have investments in over 1,800 companies that allow them to have a great deal of influence on those companies and their boards of directors. Uh, And in January and throughout this year, they've been making quite a bit of news. In January, they announced that they were going to remove companies from their portfolio that generate more than 25% of revenues from coal production. Uh, They are, uh, as a major shareholder, going to vote against management and boards of directors when companies are not making sufficient progress on sustainability related disclosures and progress towards uh, affecting climate change. Now this, you might have heard of BlackRock before because BlackRock two years ago in 2018, uh, their CEO Larry Fink in his annual report called on CEOs to focus less on short-term profits and more on long-term growth, making a a positive, urging companies to make a positive contribution to society. So at that time, they had only $6 trillion, only $6 trillion under management, uh, which was equivalent to the complete economic output of Britain and Germany combined. And they made the argument then in 2018 that social responsibility Uh, improves the bottom line and the long-term potential growth of a company also ameliorates uh, the impacts of climate change and helps prepare a company to deal with the changing environment. So that happened in 2018 and then in January 2020 you have this kind of shots fired annual report or annual letter from Larry Fink again indicating that they were going to be pulling out of coal uh, companies that invested in coal and companies that weren't making substantial progress on sustainability. In fact, they had indicated, Larry had indicated in his letter, quote, that every government, company, and shareholder must confront climate change. That was one of the quotes from the letter in January. So what has happened since? Well, now sitting here in September, uh, we are checking in on what has happened since. Uh, the January annual letter from Larry Fink. In fact, 50 companies have started to react uh, where BlackRock has investments, including Chevron and ExxonMobil. And 191 companies have now been put on watch uh, that they can expect pushback uh, in the boardroom with regard to their practices later this year or into 2021. Uh, Good examples of what's happened since January, since the January letter. BlackRock sold 1.3 million shares of Peabody Coal, uh, with further divestments expected 
that resulted in the share price of Peabody called dropping by 70% throughout 2020. Uh, certain banks and other financial sources and insurance companies have also taken action to limit available financing. Uh, these are companies, again, that BlackRock has invested in um, to once again stop or curtail the development of new coal-fueled power plants and utilities that derive the majority of their revenue from coal. So really, BlackRock is taking a hard hit on the coal industry right now. They also sold a third of their shares in uh, Contura Energy, which is another coal company. Uh, they're exerting influence with other utilities, uh, in fact, trying to influence them to replace board members uh, that touch on sustainability if those companies are not making impactful uh, goals with regard to climate and sustainability reporting. BlackRock owns 7% of Shell, uh, and they have BlackRock has threatened to pull support if progress on climate is not taken. BlackRock will also be engaging another 110 companies that they have investments, uh, carbon intense companies, this year in 2020. Uh, so they will be looking to exert influence in the boardroom also in those companies. Uh, and finally, they are, uh, in the investment side, increasing their stakes in solar companies and utilities relying on renewable resources. So you've got the largest investment company in the world really uh, pulling the fossil fuel industry to the carpet and other companies that touch the fossil fuel industry and are invested in fossil fuels to make appreciable and noticeable changes with regard to how they report sustainability and how they address the climate crisis. If you're involved in this investment world, I'd love to know what you think with regard to what BlackRock's been doing. Please, I welcome your comments and feedback. We can talk about them at a later date. Please send your emails to mark at needleconsultants.com. Welcome back. Today, thanks. Today, uh, we have with us uh, my friend, Troy Gard. Troy is one of uh, the foremost restaurateurs and chefs in, in Colorado. And uh, I've worked with Troy over the years and uh, he's got a unique story, a unique perspective, gives back and has a, just a great story to tell. And so I wanted to get Troy on a Better World podcast. So Troy, welcome to a Better World podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Look forward to it, Mark. Sure. So, so Troy, why don't we start with your origin story? You were you were raised in in Hawaii. How did um How did you get into being a chef and cooking and owning restaurants? Yep. So, uh, born on Oahu, and uh, my dad, born and raised there. His dad's born and raised there. So it's in the blood, in the genes. And uh, unfortunately, my parents split when I was young, and I moved to Seattle and then San Diego. But um, I used to always go back and visit with them. Uh, every summer. So <clears throat> the whole school year would be with my mom. And then the whole three months I'd be in Hawaii. It was awesome. And so then uh, when I went back, when I was 21, I was like, you know what, I kind of need a change. And um, I had been away from my roots for so long. Let's get back to Hawaii. And uh, back then in 1992, if you can believe it, that's a long time ago, there were no computers and no Zoom and uh, no Google. And uh, how you found out about places is 
the yellow pages or you picked up a phone and called someone. So when I went there, everyone kept telling me about this great chef named Roy Yamaguchi. And so um, I got on the phone, made an appointment with them, showed up and uh, was hired on the spot and flew back to San Diego, packed up my stuff and really never looked back. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I was 21 at the time. I had been cooking for five years. Um, was I went to a junior college for two years, but not really the studious type of guy. And uh, when I met Roy, he just kind of blew my mind with all these different flavors and spices and cooking techniques and everything. And uh, just really, really loved it. You know, Hawaii is kind of like a melting pot. Every day when I lived there, we used to eat rice or barbecue something. And um, so, you know, Roy's East West cuisine was fit perfect in Hawaii. He used all the best fish that came in, all the local produce and fruits on the island. And uh, it just blew me away, like I said. And so from there, it, it took me from, you know, this level to this level. And I spent eight years with them. Uh, I opened restaurants in Hong Kong, Tokyo, New York, and traveled all over for him. And, um, but I loved working with them. We're still friends and buddies. He's doing amazing over in Hawaii through even with this pandemic, you know, he's, he's doing his best navigating and I'm doing my best navigating through all this. But, you know, I really look to him as a mentor and one who really, um, uh, grabbed something that I loved and, you know, helped me grow to the next level. You know, from there, I've lived all over the world. I've traveled all over the place. I've been in Denver 20 years, but uh, his foundation and his uh, uh, cooking skills and his uh, teaching skills has really helped me to be the chef and person that I am today. Yeah, that's really a phenomenal story that you could cold, cold call such a you know yeah. renowned even in 92 I, I would imagine Roy was pretty renowned even in 92 yep. at that point get a gig with him and then become his opening guy for all these other restaurants what what was it about if you had to look inside yourself or the talent that you had what what do you think it was about you that Roy saw in you to to really elevate your career from from a guy that just came in basically off the street right to, uh, to having this uh, all this responsibility in one of the you know, for one of the world's foremost chefs. Yeah, you know, Roy's a James Beard chef. I think he went on to open about 50 restaurants. He probably has about 30 now. Um, he's still kicking butts. I think maybe the passion uh, that I have, um, it wasn't about the money that drove me. It was about learning. And I didn't go to culinary school. So I'd clock in at three and clock out at 11 every day. But I really came in at nine and worked for free for six hours. And so I worked, you know, from nine to 11, five days a week. Um, uh, but those six hours were my schooling. So I didn't pay to go to school, but I learned from him right there and uh, on the spot. And I think he just knew the hard work that I put in, the passion that I love about food and about making people happy. And uh, I saw that obviously from him as well. Um, I was like a sponge, you know, just really took it all in. And, um, you know, uh, if I could do it over again, it was the most fun time I ever had. You know what I mean? Like, it was just the best. Sure. Absolutely. And, and of course, you've taken that philosophy uh, and that blending of flavors, the East meets West 
here into Denver, you opened up, was your first restaurant Tag? Was that your yeah, first? Yeah, it was Tag on Larimer, and it's just my initials, kind of like Royce has his place, Royce, and I did Tag. And, um, you know, we've got Mexican, Chinese, Japanese, American, European, etc. I like to eat all those flavors. Um, you know, some people just have Italian, some people just have Asian. We've, we've got a little bit of everything, so. Uh, do you think there's a common uh, food philosophy that you maintain whenever you're opening a new concept that, that maybe runs through all the concepts or, or you just, with every restaurant, you're looking at a particular concept? So Los Chagones is Mexican and, um, uh, you know, F&G is, is something else and Garden Grace is just a steakhouse. But is there, a, you, do you say there's a common thread that runs through your restaurants that really makes it a Troy Guard restaurant? Definitely the common thread is no matter if someone's paying $10 a person like boo-boo at a quick casual spot or $100 a person at Garden Grace or a steakhouse spot, I think they're always going to get what our vision motto is, is an inspiring vibe. So there's always got to be a vibe in there. And there needs to be culinary excellence, which means um, most of our restaurants, I'm not even joking, don't even have freezers in them. We, when we build them out, they only have a refrigerator, so we get fresh product in all the time. Um, the inspiring vibe, the culinary excellence, and the hospitality. So again, I can still be very nice to you um, when you're buying this boo-boo bowl for 10 bucks, or I can be extremely nice and high-end at a Garden Grace where you're spending $100, but the service, the atmosphere, and the food. Yeah. I, I know, obviously, one of the hot trends in the culinary arts these days is farm to table. Do you incorporate any of that into what you're doing here in Denver? I know obviously you're flying in fish from Hawaii because that's yeah. that's you, that's you. The signature of Troy Guard yeah. is, is Hawaii. Um, but beyond that, where are you sourcing in terms of your supply chain, some of your, your uh, ingredients? Yeah, you know, learning that from Roy really 30 years ago was key because when you lived in Hawaii, everything got shipped or flown in. So he was really one of the uh, fathers of buying local produce. Why don't we buy it from our farmers, buy it from the people in our backyard, buy it from our community. So we try to buy as much local as possible in Colorado, depending on the weather and what we can find. And we'll, we'll also change our menu just to accommodate what we have in season here. And I think in this day and age, you can get pretty much everything from anywhere you live. So Colorado, I would say 80% of the menu is from Colorado. Like you said, I like to have fresh Hawaiian fish. So we get that. I might get some Australian products like Barramundi. Um, I think our Colorado lamb's better than Australia, but you know, we could get lamb if we wanted to. I get um, some shrimp over in Vietnam or you know, salmon from Alaska right now or halibut, but definitely 80% of the menu, if not more, is definitely local. We keep it in our backyard. We support our community. Yeah, and speaking of supporting the community, I know that you're involved in a number of philanthropic causes, starting with the James Beard Foundation. How did you get involved in that, and, and what does that mean to you in terms of being involved in the James Beard Foundation? Yes, um, you need, I think, and I, and I say this, not that you have to, but I, I feel you need to support your community. They support us 
And um, ever since day one, we opened TAG 11 years ago, we've been trying to do as much as we can throughout the city, the state, and even America. Like you said, James Beard helping them out. We help out um, called Taste of the NFL. It's, a, uh, it's at the Super Bowl every year and every NFL chef from each NFL team city gets together and we support the food banks of each location. We do probably over a hundred different charities a year alone just at our restaurant group and well over a hundred thousand dollars we give in money uh time food etc so it, it's a huge huge part of what we do um i've been voted uh philanthropic uh person of the year in denver and that makes me proud but it really goes to our whole group because we all do it together and uh yeah we like to help out and give back as much as possible yeah, and you also support We Don't Waste, which I guess Correct. takes food from unused food or food waste from your restaurants yep. and redistributes that to um, food pantries and uh, homeless shelters. Is that something I've been, been with them, I think, at least five, if not more years. Um, we Don't Waste is great. Arlen started that, and he's amazing. And I think they've grown from one delivery truck to five delivery trucks, and I don't know how many tons of food and um, people they're able to feed, but that, that makes me feel good. I, I feel like we're one of the best countries in the world and luckiest, but we waste so much food and we have so many people going hungry. Why is that? We need to do better here. For sure. No question about it. There was that documentary um, uh, last year or a couple of years ago uh, on food waste as well. And I'm trying to think which chef was involved in that on it's food crazy, waste. It, yeah. it, is, it is a tremendous problem in this country, especially when we have so many people that are going without food. Agreed, um, agreed. And so, you know, anytime we get to help and right now I've, I have three kids. So the focus is a lot on kids nutrition and, you know, where do the, where does food come from? You know, so we have a garden in our yard. We, we, we teamed up with national Jewish health and, um, uh, they have a school there for kids who have asthma and respiratory problems and low income. And we go there and um, we plant their gardens with them. We harvest it with them. I brought them into the kitchen and showed them how to use these vegetables in recipes so they could go home and do it with their families. And it's been a great learning tool for them and for us because I take my kids there as well to, to do it with me. Yeah. Uh, the movie is called Wasted and it's Anthony Bourdain. Oh, cool. Anthony Bourdain's in it. So, All right on. Uh, so you'll have check, to it check it out. out. I don't yeah. think I've seen it. Speaking of children, I know that you've also gotten involved in helping chronically ill children. Uh, how did that come about? Uh, obviously, we all, those of us with children, right. uh, have, a, have a soft spot in our heart for many children's issues. How did, how did that come about and how do you work with, with groups that are involved with uh, chronically ill children? Yeah, great question. I mean, when we do do things, you know, I like to do things for a purpose. I like to help as, as much as we can, but the bigger ones, kids, definitely we like to help with something that has to do with hunger and something that has to do with our military. Those are the three things that we kind of focus on, but definitely uh, kids who don't have what we have. And I want my kids to understand that as well. So like I said, with the National Jewish who are sick, and uh, don't have the same means as we do. And, uh, uh, you know, we, that's just my job. I've got to help out. 
Yeah. Working with um, military families and, and those veterans that have been in the military, does that derive from your uh, upbringing in Hawaii since the military is such a presence there? Or is there somebody in your family that that ties to or, or someone you've encountered here in Denver that really you made you what? think? That's a, another good question. I mean, well, all my grandfathers were in some type of war, some type of military. My dad was in the Navy. Um, you know, I never really thought about that. I just think that they fight for our country and our freedom. And gosh, we, we should uh, help them out and give back to them because uh, they're doing the dirty work and the dirty job. And we're sitting over here uh, lucky. And so that's why I like to, to help them out is because they've given me the freedom to be uh, this chef and entrepreneur. And I feel like I need to give back because they've done so much for me and our country. So. Well, that's great. You know, I, I love when uh, entrepreneurs get involved in causes that have a personal relationship to them. Uh, yeah. It creates an authenticity and a foundation that tells the story um, much more clearly. Uh, yeah. So knowing about your family background is, is helpful, I think, for the listeners. Yeah, everyone has been in some type of military or, or war. And when we got to go back to uh, D.C. a couple years ago, that was really eye-opening because I had never been there. And to see all the memorials, uh, especially the Vietnam, World War II, you know, Korea and all that, it was just amazing. Yeah. So right now, we're, we're kind of in a war right now, a yeah. war against a virus and a war against an economy that is struggling right now. And, I, and no industry uh, has been more affected than the hospitality industry, for sure. How, how has that affected you and, and your restaurants? I, I know that you were even preparing meals for your vast staff of people that were out of work for a while. And can you talk a little bit about what COVID has done uh, with regard to the restaurant industry and, and in particular, um, the TAG restaurant group? Yeah, obviously it's been horrific. I mean, never in my wildest dreams could I ever see the restaurant industry shutting down, you know? You know, you look at 9-11 and my mom was a flight attendant at the time and was in the air flying from Japan to L.A. And they diverted her to Canada and had to stay there for a few days. So they reopened everything and you saw how things changed so drastically there. But here, I always thought being a chef, geez, everyone needs to eat three meals a day. I'll always have a job, right? <laughs> so the hospitality industry, I want people to understand and realize that it's not just restaurants it's the farmer who's growing the stuff it's the middleman who's transporting it to us it's there's so many different layers that it's it's uh, that's what i really want people to hope, try to understand that it, it affects more than me we had over 600 people that we had to lay off and uh, we've only brought back 40 percent of them so um you know, with only 50% capacity, it's just, we can't do it. So, um, and even at that, you know, then food prices start going up and it's, it's the most challenging thing that I've ever seen. I was saying to some people the other day, 2019, we had 13 restaurants, 623 employees, you know, five new restaurants to open up in the next two years came to a halt. Right. Um, we're probably going to close a couple restaurants this year. We've already closed one. We'll probably close one or two more. Um, we, we will not reopen some of those restaurants that I talked to you about. 
and we're gonna ha we're gonna have to do things differently now. And um, you know, in times like this, I kind of enjoy getting thrown this curveball because it makes you reassess and rethink everything you're doing and making sure that you're continuing on the right path. But it is really, really devastating. And um, uh, I, I just really take it day by day. That's all I can do because things change so rapidly. I do need the Congress to get together and figure out how they can help people out because I don't think um, you know, restaurant or hospitality or airlines or any business really wants to go out of business, they, but we do need help. How can I be a, uh, a $35 million company last year making, you know, a great profit and having good people to go and maybe bankrupt this year because the government closed me down? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. So we do need help to get back on our feet. Uh, we just want to get to the other side to survive. Once we get to the other side, which means maybe we have a vaccination or it's safer to eat out or we come up with an, a, a way to do it, but we feel we have, we have a good foundation to continue uh, what we're doing here. But until then, it's very, very shaky. It's rocky. It's, it's stressful. It's scary. It's, there's uncertainty. I don't know what's going to happen next week. I don't think you do either. Um, if you did, I'd go to Vegas right now and bet on it. But it's just, it's very, it's very trying. Are you uh, enjoying a little bit more time with the family and being able to cook at home for a change as opposed to floating between all of your restaurants? Is, is, that, is that at least a bright spot in your, in, in this terrible, horrible, horrendous situation that we're in? You know what? I know I would love to say it is, but being a restaurant owner, I never took a day off. I was here every day talking with banks, landlords, investors, figuring out what we're going to do. We laid off people and for three months we decided we wanted to pay for everyone's insurance, which costs money, but that's, that's the type of people I think we all are as entrepreneurs. We, we think about our staff, our employees, our guests, our customers, um, and trying to figure all that out. But I have taken a few days and, and spent some time with the family, and I do try to, you know, step back at a certain point in time. But yeah, it's been really, um, it's been really challenging. But the time that I do get to spend with them is a lot more uh, emotional, a lot more. I, I don't take it for granted, and you know, hug them a little bit more and make sure that they're safe and tell them I love them because I just actually took two of them to school today. And uh, one is six and one is two. And the 11-year-old um, the is online doing Zoom classes. I mean, it's crazy, right? Yeah, I've got a 10-year-old and, and experiencing very similar things with this uh, online learning and school part of the time. And yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy as a parent. It's hard. It's hard to balance it all. Um, yeah. So you had mentioned that you had changed some things up as a result of COVID. Obviously, you, you scaled staffing back for even the restaurants that are open. Yep. What are some of the more creative things you think you've done as a result of COVID to, to sell food, really, in a, in a situation where you can't pack your restaurant and do things the way you'd always done it, from working with Roy right up till, yep. right up until March? Exactly. Well, there's a new way of thinking, you know, now everyone, uh, not everybody, but you know, you only have 50% of the seats. So 
Um, that's one thing you're working with. And then the new environment is we, we tip pool. Before we didn't tip pool. So we told everyone when they come back, hey, look, we're going to do it together. We're going to fight this thing through together. So uh, a host, a busser, um, a server, a bartender, we just pull it together. Um, we're also looking at a few other different scenarios. We also looked at smaller menus. We looked at um, uh, utilizing products um, a little bit more the same at all the restaurants. You know, if one chef likes this type of tomato, but this chef likes this tomato, it's like, let's, let's use the same cool tomatoes. So that's what we're doing there is utilizing that. Um, we're doing a lot more uh, promotions and marketing, meaning get, just getting ourselves out there. Tomorrow we're doing a pop-up burger restaurant at Tag on Larimer, which we don't do that, but we're doing it to, to try some new things out changing the hours, you know, talking to our vendors. We talked to them right away and said, hey, we owe you X amount. Can you work with us, our landlords, etc." trying to figure out different ways to survive and how to pay people back. So yeah, there's been a lot of uh, exciting and challenging things that have come out of it and I think are gonna continue to. The biggest one that I take is, I think from now on, takeout is gonna be what everyone does. So. Um, I have three kids, so I don't eat out as much as I used to, um, just because they run around and it's hard to coordinate them, but I will get food from one of our restaurants or somewhere else and take it home and, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have that at dinner. So I think takeout is really the biggest, um, opportunity that I see, uh, ahead of us. Now, again, if you had a pizza spot or Chipotle or McDonald's, you're sitting good. You're probably doing more business than you ever did before the pandemic. But people like us who are sit down restaurant, we have to rethink things and reorganize things. And even now I'm thinking like, if we open another restaurant, would I do full service? I might not do full service. I might do quick service, or I might have a window where you walk up and order tacos. And, you know, so there's a lot of different scenarios that we're chewing on and thinking about right now. Are you doing any uh, uh, cook your own meals, box meals, where people take the ingredients and put them together? Or are you um, focusing more on creating the meals that you would normally make in your restaurants and trying to present them in an elegant way for takeout? Correct. That's one more thing that we did think of that you can order like a Garden Grace steak. You can order one of our great steaks, our seasoning, go home and cook it yourself, or you can order it from us. We're happy to cook it for you. But yeah, you're right. We have put together some of those meal kits as well. And we've got a lot more coming up for the fall and winter because we're going to have less seating capacity with, with patios and, you know, fall and winter, I think more uh, rustic, homey, warm dishes like lasagna or meatloaf or, you know, anything like that, where you can just throw it in the oven and, turn it on and good to go. But um, yeah, definitely having to think outside the box has been uh, fun, crazy, but I think a lot of good things happen in, in times of uh, duress like this. I agree. I think uh, while this is painful and challenging for a lot of people, uh, yourself and, and your 600 people yeah. that used to work for you as well, I think uh, we're going to start to figure out how to do some things differently and uh, and it will be interesting. Uh, 2021 will be an interesting year, 22. And um, uh, a lot of my um, friends and family in the music industry are going through the same struggle right now where they can't, they can't serve anyone, nobody, yeah. nothing. Uh, so um, I feel for you, brother. And I appreciate you coming on today. 
And, uh, you know, I wish you and your staff and your family all the best as we all try to struggle through this. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thanks for all the listeners. And like I said, you know, go out there and support your local people, you know, go out there and uh, write about them, tweet about them, just walk in the door and say thank you. You know, I bought some police officers some food the other day, you know, like, hey, whatever we can do to keep supporting each other, that's community. But thank you so much. Indeed. And that's this episode of A Better World. If you found this podcast to be helpful, useful, inspiring, please consider subscribing wherever podcasts are heard. You can find out more information about this particular episode as well as our other episodes on our website, www.abetterworldpodcast.net. From your comments and suggestions and feedback, you can send that all to Mark M-A-R-C at needleconsultants.com. I'm Mark Ross, and I look forward to joining you next time as we explore how we can all help to create a better world.